Welcome to Sex and the State, a newsletter about power. Uh, I am joined today with Adri, uh, an amazing uh, writer on sex work and work and feminism and all kinds of amazing things. Um, we are uh, going to talk today about feminism, obviously, and the connection between SWERFs, TERFs, and white supremacy, among other things, whatever we can get to in our 40 minutes. Um, thank you so much for joining. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for asking me to talk to you. I'm very excited. Wonderful. So you're going to present um, at, a, at a conference on this topic. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, yes, so a friend of mine, fellow sex worker, Dr. Snow, um, introduced me to some other academics. I refer to myself as a reformed academic. I dropped out of grad school last year for a number of reasons. Um, but before I left, a lot of my focus was on um, the technological oppression of sex workers and marginalized people, especially on social media platforms. Um, and I've written a good bit about how sex workers and trans people especially are targeted on social media. Um, and Dr. Snow recommended me um, for a panel at the American Studies Association um, for a roundtable discussion called Swerf and Turf, which <laughs> is a lot of fun. Um, but it's basically about how exclusionary feminism harms all of us, really. Um, and as a sex worker, as someone who is in a relationship long-term with a trans person, obviously the intersections of those two things matter a lot to me and they inform a lot of not only how I see the world, but how I, um, or how my own feminism and my own politics have evolved a lot. Totally. And this sounds like it's going to be um, an audience of academics or who who's kind of going to be the main uh, audience for the so my understanding is that it's almost exclusively academics, um, but the way I understand the American Studies Association is that they're very open to non-academic scholarship, obviously, as someone who's no longer in academia. So I imagine, um, or I hope at least there will be some non-academics as well. Um, so if you could, yeah, we'd, I'd love to just hear kind of what you found in your preparation for giving this talk about this, this intersection. Sure. So um, as a, a self-professed commie tribe, <laughs> um, a lot of my writing, a lot of my work deals with um, transphobia and whorephobia in leftist, space, leftist spaces, especially. We've seen a huge rise in transphobic and whorephobic rhetoric, especially online when it comes from leftist spaces under the guise of you know, we have to protect workers. Um, and so a lot of it, especially in terms of horophobia, um, it's really just a lot of repackaged nonsense about how sex workers are uniquely um, at risk for violence and oppression and all of these sorts of things. And we know that sex workers and trans people do face elevated um, rates of abuse, assault, um interpersonal violence all these sorts of things we know that to be the truth but it's not inherent to being a sex worker or being a trans person and logically if you follow that thought process it's simple enough to understand that it comes not from that inherent state 
but from the oppression that comes as a result of it. And when it comes to being trans or being a sex worker, especially a lot of that oppression, a lot of that rhetorical violence comes as a result of not understanding how white supremacist rhetoric, how nationalist rhetoric, how fundamentalist and evangelical rhetoric has really pervaded in the ways that all of us were socialized. I was just talking about this earlier, but there's this belief that sex especially is this inherently sacred thing sex is tied to intimacy it's tied to monogamy it can't be divorced from these things and a lot of that well it's not true <laughs> but a lot of it is tied to the evangelical belief that the sole purpose of sex is reproduction and the creation of life but a lot of people never interrogate why they hold these beliefs that sex is something special and sex is something important and so they're just parroting a lot of rhetoric can I sorry uh can I stop you for a second Sure. Because I know you could go on for 40 minutes uh, <laughs> uninterrupted. And, and I think that would be amazing. But um, just to make sure that everyone's kind of with you, because they're not all steeped in this stuff, sure. uh, to the extent that you are. So Swerfs and Turfs uh, refer to sex worker, exclusionary, radical feminists. Radical feminists doesn't mean they're especially feminist. It, it's a particular subset of feminism. Um, yeah. And Turf is trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Um, and yeah, so some of the whorephobia and transphobia that you're talking about, um, you know, obviously the uh, exclusion of trans women from the category of woman uh, is, is a lot of the, the transphobia as, as well as fear about including trans women and uh, women majority or women only spaces, um, fear about, you know, sexual assault, uh, committed by trans people, which to my knowledge has literally never happened. Um, and uh, for the whorephobia aspect, what I've seen a lot of is the, in leftist spaces, they talk a lot about abolition of sex work or the sex industry. But as we know, um, you can't really abolish something uh, that is voluntarily entered into, the only thing you can do is to stigmatize it or criminalize it. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to stigmatizing and criminalizing sex work, it's, it's pretty ironic that all of the, you know, all the credible evidence indicates stigma and criminalization makes sex work more exploitative and more dangerous. So we're gonna criminalize and stigmatize something because it's dangerous, thereby making it more dangerous right. uh, for everybody involved. Um, and, and I and I really I think your point about the way I put it is you know sex isn't magic um, and whether you're talking about a swerve or an evangelical the the viewpoint is fundamentally the same that a woman can consent to making a latte or cleaning a toilet for money but she can't consent to sex for money because yeah. sex is magic because sex is some different category that uh, makes it uh, totally different from anything else you could agree to do for money. Um, but yeah, let's let's get back to the yeah. uh, overlap between um, the evangelical conception of sex as magic and how it ties into the swerf and turf conception of sex as magic. Sure. Um, so I, I mean, I think that leads to the whole idea that sex is magic and you can't have sex for money. It, it leads to a really good point that a lot of this is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what consent is. Um, 
a lot of people have issues with sex work um, and I've seen the phrase paid rape thrown around a lot, which is extremely offensive <laughs> to anyone that's survived sexual assault, which is also many sex workers. But I, again, I think it's just a misunderstanding of how consent works. Um, consent is not a one-time thing. It's not a matter of, well, I said yes, and now I can't say no. Um, one of the reasons that sex workers find that idea of paid rape so completely offensive is because like all sex sex work is a constant negotiation and reaffirming of boundaries and the conditions needed to like continue actively consenting to something now for most sex workers that is the exchange of money but being given money doesn't negate your ability to consent um that being said I, I think there's a really, there are a couple of really clear ties to transphobia. The most obvious one being that trans people are obviously overrepresented as a demographic in sex work. They have little to no job protections at the federal and state level. Um, they really struggle with maintaining employment for any number of reasons. And a lot of times trans youth end up in sex work first because they were trafficked or because they had no other job options after being thrown out of their homes as minors. So we know that trans people are involved in sex work at greater numbers. So there's that obvious connection. But I think aside from that, trans people threaten nationalist white supremacist ideals of the family. It's really difficult to convince everyone to get married maintain a standard cishet monogamous marriage, pop out 2.5 kids, if people are actively rejecting the ideas of biological sex and um, extremely traditional gender roles. And that's not even to say that you have to be trans to reject gender roles, but to be trans is... I, I think that's true to an extent. I think what's confusing to me a little bit is that, you know, to an extent, like the difference between, like, I think Bell Hooks talked about, like the difference between being gay and queer, mm -hmm. right? That to be gay is, is, you know, about who you want to have sex with. To be queer is to question the fundamentals of, you know, the nuclear family and gender right. roles and what's expected of you. And I, I see a lot of, gayness in American society right like yes. you got a lot of people who maybe they're not a cisgendered hetero monogamous person but they're still doing well monogamy is not what I mean but I'm just I, I guess what I saw a lot of in DC in particular were like I call them like white picket fence gays right like they yeah. wanted the same thing that everybody you know that the white hetero patriarchy would say is best they just wanted it with their boyfriend instead of their girlfriend right and so I'm wondering about the extent to which like obviously a lot of what conservatives are worried about with regard to trans people and gay people is just absolutely ridiculous like the idea that like everybody's going to be trans or everybody's going to be gay if we stop stigmatizing these identities is just like patently false like it's just not true right but even the idea that like gay people and trans people definitionally or necessarily threaten the you know white heteropatriarchy I don't even know if that's true like I see how it could 
but I don't see in practice that it does. You know what I mean? Well, and I, I think that speaks to the insidiousness of like white supremacist fundamentalist rhetoric. And there's this really pervasive belief amongst the queer community, or I guess not even the queer community, but amongst the LGBT community um, and among even among sex workers, there's this belief that if you perform it correctly, you will be accepted. So the running joke is that um the the running joke is that white gays are the weakest link because at, they're still just white cis men so like they're really invested in upholding the status quo and there's I think there's a certain truth to that it, um you see white gays like um Milo Yiannopoulos really embraced by the right because despite the fact that they are gay they are still really invested in upholding the status quo and parroting this rhetoric that we see a lot of the times but at the same time no matter how much trans people no matter how much uh gay bisexual pansexual people parrot that rhetoric it does not change the fact that they are dispensable tools to conservative right-wing talking heads and as soon as they stop serving the purpose as soon as they stop functioning as sort of a trophy they no longer become useful um uh obviously they're they're not part of the queer community but an example of this is diamond and silk who we saw hit the campaign trail during Donald Trump's um, uh, presidential run, his first presidential run. Um, and as soon as they began speaking about the discrimination that they experienced in or amongst his campaign staff, they were discarded, right? Because they no longer fit the narrative that like there are some good blacks out there. And I think it's the same thing for a lot of queer people and a lot of sex workers. Um, we see them parroting the rhetoric, but as soon as they begin to question the narrative, they're no longer useful and they no longer function in the way that they're supposed to. That being said, I think the simple fact that trans people and sex workers continue to be such targets and such visible targets for these people, they, it really reinforces the idea that their existence is a subversion of the state of being that um, conservatives and nationalists and white supremacists are trying to preserve, whether they're actively involved in subverting those ideals or not. Yeah, I think to a large extent, uh, queer people and sex workers, to a small extent, like threaten the status quo, but to a much larger extent, they serve as scapegoats to whatever systemic changes, societal changes uh, really are shaking up the status quo. Um, you know, we're not going to focus on those things because they're difficult and multifaceted. So we're just going to attack trans people and sex workers because they're the ones that are screwing everything up. Right. Um, we saw that recently with, um, I don't remember which publication it was, but there was an article about STI rates um, rising amongst teenagers and young adults being linked to people watching porn. Um, 
And I <laughs> obviously most of what I saw was people really pushing back against that idea. But what the article did not really even attempt to address is that comprehensive sex ed has become less and less common in the public school system. Um, and uh, private school system is a whole nother issue because they're really not required to do the same things. But in public schools, especially, we see more and more abstinence only education. And um, when I was teaching in Dade County, it was a fireable offense to talk about safe sex with your students, which to me is ridiculous because Dade County has the highest incidence of new HIV cases in the country. This is causation, not correlation. We know this. When you don't teach children, teenagers and young adults about safe sex consistently and from an early age, they're more likely to wind up pregnant as teenagers, they're more likely to wind up with STIs, they're more likely to end up with AIDS, and they're more likely to drop out of school because of pregnancies that they cannot get terminated. That being said, to blame all of those issues, teen pregnancy, STIs, dropout rates, to blame those things on pornography when most I'll say many, not most, when many young adults and teenagers are turning to pornography because the questions that they have about sex are not being answered by anyone with any kind of expertise, the issue itself is not porn. It's that accurate, medically sound, anatomically correct information is not available to them. And that, to me, is wild. <laughs> I, I mean, to bring it all back, I had, when I was, I taught ninth grade, so I had students asked me about drag queens and trans people. They wanted to learn. They had seen these things on TV, but no one in their life had ever talked to them about them. I had one student who said, I just think it's weird that men dress up like women. And I asked him, well, why do you think it's weird? And he didn't really have an answer for it. Um, but once I talked to him um, and really got into it, it wasn't that he thought it was weird. It's that he had never seen anyone do it before. And how could he? He was a first-generation Cuban-American student from Miami. His parents worked three jobs. It's not like he was going to drag brunch on South Beach. But a lot of times, they simply need a starting point, and they need accurate information. So all of that to say, I, I agree with you. I think it's so much easier to target trans people and to target sex workers, to call them groomers, to accuse them of um, trying to traffic children or whatever other nonsense we're looking at than it is to address the fact that a lot of us are complicit in raising children that are not prepared for life after public school. Totally. Um, yeah, I, I read a really good book about the ties between white supremacist heteropatriarchy and the um, white Christian evangelical movement in the United States called Jesus and John Wayne. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think those ties are like pretty clear. Um, I think you could make a pretty compelling evidence-based case for uh, those overlaps, but I'm curious about the, the swerf and turf uh, white supremacist overlaps. Um, like are these, you know, yeah, tell us tell, tell us more about that. Well, I think at its core, white supremacy functions 
around the idea of homogeneity. Um, everyone has to look the same. Everyone has to think the same. Everyone has to perform the same. Otherwise, the status quo cannot be maintained. Um, and a lot of that has to do with forcing people into like a manufactured hierarchical struggle. Um, if people are not constantly fighting each other to get to the top, if people aren't fighting to win capitalism, like <laughs> it's really difficult for the system to maintain itself because it, it can't, right? People just don't function that way. Every person is not the same. Every person does not exist the same, love the same, work the same. All those sorts of things are really contradictory to like the white supremacist structure. Um, anyone that is visibly other, brown people, trans people, sex workers, anyone that subverts the status quo simply by existing, whether they're trying to or not. And I think that's an important distinction. Most sex workers, most trans people are not trying to be activists. They simply want to be left the hell alone, which I greatly respect. Um, but the very nature of their existence, it pisses people off on like a soul deep level. People get so mad at me. I get hate mail all the time from people that are like, you're just a whore. Well, yes, but that doesn't make anything that I'm saying inaccurate. I'm <laughs> I'm not out to, you know, turn anyone into a sex worker. I'm not trying to convert people. I firmly, firmly want to be left the hell alone. I wish that like the need for what I do did not exist, but it does because me, people like me, people like my partner are constantly being attacked. They're being told that they don't deserve to live. They deserve to be in jail cells because they represent some great existential threat to children and like the soul of the nation when all they're trying to do is like pay rent. Yeah. And it's interesting to me how the links between like the Cold War and white nationalism and evangelicism were established in Jesus and John Wayne, how there was this idea that the that Russia and, and communism was godless and that their families were weak and that in America, we needed strong families. We needed nuclear families. We needed white people to reproduce. We needed people, Americans to be God-fearing in order to defeat communism and keep America strong. And so the freak out about premarital sex and uh, homosexuality um, and these things like were very much tied to these fears over communism and the Cold War. And it seems like the through line is that, like you said, anything other than cisgendered, heterosexual, lifelong monogamous marriage is like a fundamental threat to American society. And, um, and that these, these structures are, I think it's hard when we talk about white supremacy, because it, it's it's easier to, to make, I guess what I would guess is that, and I think we should define white supremacy, 
possibly. Um, I think that when people think about white supremacy, like there's obviously the people who are like avowed white supremacists mm -hmm. who, you know, want a, a, a white ethno state. Um, and then there's just kind of like the latent systemic white supremacy, which is where institutions and systems um, often inadvertently um, uh, discriminate against non-white people in such a way as to advantage white people comparatively. Right. Um, and it's like, when you look at whorephobia, right? Like it's, it is fundamentally white supremacist in its execution in that the people who um, bear the biggest brunt of criminalization are marginalized sex workers, particularly sex workers of color who are more likely to have to work outdoors and outdoor sex work is where most of the uh, violence and criminaliza criminalization happens, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, where, do, where does Swerfs and Turfs come in? Um, where don't they come in? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that so, like I said, white supremacy is, to me, at its core, um, a function of very strict hierarchy. Um, it's about maintaining sameness, which is why um, there's no quote-unquote white culture. <laughs> it's about homogenizing the culture. It, it's about making everything the same, boring and beige. <laughs> um, and I think that swerfs and turfs, really even, I would say radical feminists in general, for them, I think a lot of the rhetoric that they're parroting comes from a time where Hillary Clinton, Gloria Allred, or I'm sorry, is that her name? Gloria Steinem, that's who it is. Mm. Um, these were really the champions of feminism. And I, I think for them, that is the bound like the idea of the um, the white woman busting through the glass ceiling and like achieving corporate success. I think for so many radical feminists, that to them is like the pinnacle of their feminism. I don't think that it's possible for them to imagine a feminism that is any more expansive than that. And I get into a lot of trouble for saying this, but I tend to believe that white women, white feminists specifically pose a very unique danger to anyone that is not white. <laughs> and people yell at me and they get really mad at me and they're like, well, white men are so violent. I'm not disagreeing with you. White men have been and are incredi incredibly violent, but a lot of times that violence is physical. It's very visible. It's very easy to identify and I think fight back against when it comes to white radical feminism when it comes to white women and the way that they are socialized I think it's so much more dangerous and so much more insidious because the idea is well we're all in this together and if you argue with me you're a bad feminist you're not on women's side you hate women if I say I don't think sex workers have to be empowered in order to deserve labor protections the pushback is, oh, you think women should be raped. You think women should be assaulted. Actually, I don't think that. I think that's, I think those are terrible things. <laughs> I would never wish those things on anyone. Um, but my feminism, I think is far more expansive and it understands that like 
that hierarchy does not serve me. It does not serve a lot of other women. I'm not interested in winning capitalism. The sex workers that I know are not interested in winning capitalism. They just want to put food on their table. They just want to pay rent. Um, and it is so much easier to attack them, the sex workers themselves. It's so much easier to attack trans people who are simply interested in surviving from day to day for their existence than it is to address you know, your complicity in, a, in upholding a system that makes them an underclass. Yeah. Okay. So let me make sure I understand what you're saying. Um, when rad femmes, particularly swerfs and turfs, um, do things like advocate for the stigmatization and criminalization of sex work, um, engage in transphobia, engage in carceral feminism, they are wittingly or unwittingly violently upholding white supremacist heteropatriarchy. Yes. <laughs> um, honestly, I think when it comes to transphobia, it's a little more, um, I hate to say nuanced because at the end of the day, transphobia is violent. There's really no excuse for it. But I think, I can kind of maybe a little bit understand where some people are coming from when it comes to their transphobia, because for a lot of people, it's not something that they have ever had to understand before. They've never been forced to confront the fact that there are trans people in their lives, because there are. They've never been forced to like reckon with the idea that no, you can't look at someone and tell that they're trans. It's simply a ridiculous assertion to make, right? Um, I was just talking to my partner about this because I buy men's shirts because they have really broad shoulders. <laughs> and I see online all the time, oh, I can tell she was definitely born a man because she has linebacker shoulders. Well, I'm a cis woman and I just have white shoulders. There's really nothing I can do about it. Um, but I think it makes people uncomfortable to be confronted with something that they have never actually seen before. Um, that being said, I firmly believe, and I have yet to be proven wrong, but I firmly believe that every opposition to sex work I have ever come across in the end comes down to like Christian fundamentalist socialization. You are uncomfortable with some aspect of sex or the commercialization of sex. And so you need everyone else to feel the same way. <laughs> and a lot of times the, people talk about like the spirituality of sex and like souls and all of that stuff. And that sounds really good on the internet, I guess. But just because you took the word Jesus out of it that doesn't make it any less Christian <laughs> um, well and it's also it's individual like it's absolutely fine for you to experience sex as a soul connection or right. a meaningful act or something that's only to be done in these particular circumstances with these particular people knock yourself out that's amazing but for you to violently enforce your individual conceptions of sexuality on another human is not acceptable like you can believe whatever you want you cannot force other people to conform to your views at gunpoint um, or with the threat of stigma or 
um, you know, negative, you don't get to punish people for not believing as you do. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I empathize with, with a lot of people because, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist as a white person in Alabama and the reality is if you are not individually subject to a particular kind of oppression, the only way you could possibly know about it is by listening to other people. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about racism because I didn't have to experience it. Right. I didn't know anything about horophobia because I wasn't subject to it until I was a sex worker and and really until I started listening to sex workers. And so, yeah, you're not going to understand transphobia and how it impacts people until you listen to people. But that's kind of, like the project here is to figure out that these things exist, that we need to get educated on them to yeah. inform ourselves about the reality of the situation and to, you know, try to blunt uh, the oppressive impulses that we're all imbued with simply by being raised in, in a society that uh, seeks to uh, violently um, uh, uphold its status hierarchies and status quo. I think when it comes to the issue of like um, trans people being called groomers or like being posed as a unique threat to children, um, I think, again, so much of that fear that I, or I feel like I'm seeing a lot of it come from white Southern and conservative moms who maybe very deep <laughs> deep down they're like terrified that they're not gonna have grandchildren <laughs> um that's something that I my mom is not a white southern woman <laughs> but it, it's something that I went through with my mom for years getting her to understand that like I don't want children will never want children um have no interest in them and I'm less concerned about you know who's gonna take care of me in my old age and more will I live to see the age of 50. So I, again, I can almost kind of understand if I like squint really hard, uh, <laughs> but again, all of it is just really violent rhetoric. And I, I think it comes down to, like you said, you have to listen to people who share experiences that are not your own. It's something even I struggle with, honestly. Yeah, we all do. Well, I really appreciate you coming on to share your experience and scholarship. Um, and uh, I just wanted to give you a chance in the few minutes we have left to tell people where they can read more of your work and follow uh, your advocacy. Uh, sure. So on, I deleted my TikTok account because that was an awful experience. But on Instagram and Twitter, I am at Adri Rising, A-D-R-I-E-R-I-S-I-N-G, all one word. Um, my, all of my writing is pinned on the top of my Twitter account. Um, my website is adrierose, A-D-R-I-E-R-O-S-E dot link, L-I-N-K. And that's pretty much it. Wonderful. Well, I hope that your talk is well received. It should be. I'm glad you get to give it. And um, I really, again, appreciate you uh, giving me your time and uh, sharing your expertise. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, anytime. Talk to you soon.